Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Philip Bennett, former managing editor for The Washington Post and PBS's Frontline, and current Patterson Professor of the Practice of Journalism and Public Policy at Duke University. He spoke about how the promise of the digital revolution has fallen short for some aspects of media and civic engagement, and why news outlets should have an interest in improving the situation. Moderating the event is Tom Patterson, Interim Director of the Shore and Scene Center. So welcome everybody. Uh, I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the uh, interim director of the Shorenstein Center. But we're just delighted to have uh, Phil Bennett with us. Uh, Phil is the Eugene Patterson professor uh, at Duke. Uh, Eugene Patterson was one of the really top uh, editors in this country and had a deep loyalty to Duke. Uh, Alex Jones, some of you may know, uh, held this position uh, before he became the director of the Shorenstein Center. So. Uh, and uh, before uh, taking that position at Duke in 2009, Phil was uh, managing editor of the Post uh, between 2005 and 2009, and before that for a number of years, uh, the foreign editor uh, at the Post. And then while at Duke and a couple of years into the Duke stint, uh, simultaneously he took on the role of managing uh, director of Frontline, and that I think was roughly a two-year mm-hmm. two-year gig. and. Uh, Bill, we're just delighted that you're here. Well, thanks, Welcome. Tom. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's nice to see some familiar and friendly uh, faces, and um, and it's nice to be back at the uh, Kennedy School. I, I, I sort of I started on my path to journalism uh, here many years ago, working, and I can't even point in the right direction because it's such a maze now. But uh, uh, working in the office of uh, Professor Richard Newstadt as a researcher, <laughs> and um, uh, and you know. I, uh, Dick Neustadt, uh, of course, wasn't a journalist, but he launched a lot of journalists on their on their careers, and he had this idea of journalism as a sort of uh, history of now, uh, and uh, with elements that were investigative, uh, explanatory, uh, narrative, and I think he'd say uh, in constant need of revision, uh, and that idea uh, really got lodged in a lot of uh, people's heads who went on, who I became colleagues later uh, in my career. I was also thinking about that because I, I recall uh, the summer that I was working in Professor Neustadt's office coming across a quote from a journalist that is one of my favorite quotes of, of all time. Um, uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, the U.S. ambassador to Saigon had a scrum with uh, journalists and uh, one of them was a, uh, a French uh, correspondent working for Newsweek named uh, Francois Sully. Uh, and, um, uh, he'd written reports of Vietnam about the war that were more critical or negative than the official version coming out of the embassy. And so the ambassador turned to him angrily and he said, uh, Monsieur Sully, why do you always see the hole in the donut? Uh, to which Sully uh, responded, because, Monsieur l'ambassadeur, there is a hole in the donut. Um, so um, I'm going to talk uh, for a couple of minutes today, naturally, about holes uh, in the donut. Uh, and uh, instead of holes being filled by journalism, uh, these are sort of gaps in our picture of reality as we get it from the news media. Um, and I'm going to try to describe some of those and, and why I think they're uh, important. I think of these as sort of missing pieces 
um, that weaken the news media's ability to contribute to democracy. So I think that they're, I, I see them in that uh, context. And then at the end of the talk, I'm going to uh, touch on briefly some research uh, that we're doing at Duke uh, that I think um, tries to address some specific uh, aspects of these trends. So we all know that the digital age is filled with paradoxes and contradictions. And uh, I want to choose three that I think have a direct bearing on the news media. Uh, and these are all areas where the promise of the revolution in information technology uh, is in some ways falling short of our original hopes and expectations. So what are they? So the first would be that despite the World Wide Web, censorship in many countries is flourishing. The second is that despite broad engagement with information networks in the United States, political polarization and fact-free campaigning are thriving, as we're all aware. Uh, and third, despite unprecedented documentation of humanitarian crises, um, the empathetic or constructive responses that we would hope to see are, in many cases, uh, scarce or missing. So I'm going to try to address each of these uh, briefly, and I, I would come with a caveat to that, which is I'm addressing them from the angle of journalism, and there are a lot of different ways to address them, and I'm also addressing them as problems uh, of journalism and of research uh, into the media. So there are no simple solutions to any of them, as we all know, uh, but they are places on the map where journalism could do more uh, and do better. So on global censorship, um, the spread of the internet has been credited, rightly so, with shifting uh, balances of power between, uh, from governments to civil society. And I think many people thought at the birth uh, of the web, or that the birth of the web would mark, if not the death of censorship, then the beginning of uh, the erosion of censorship. And in fact, Walter Isaacson, who gave a terrific uh, keynote the other night at the Goldsmith Awards, uh, actually quoted in his speech a famous phrase that was published in Time Magazine in, in 1993 uh, that said, the net interprets censorship as damage and routes around it, uh, an early uh, prediction that uh, we would see that uh, censorship disappear or at least be diminished. You know, but that's not the case in many places today. Um, last year, my colleague Moises Naim and I uh, examined censorship in many countries, including in those with some of the highest internet adoption rates in the world. So we looked at China, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, those countries, which we feel like we know a lot about. Uh, but we also looked at Hungary, Ecuador, <laughs> Turkey, Kenya, and Venezuela. And what we found in many cases was that governments were routing around the liberating effects of the internet. So censorship in some of these places was direct and visible, blocking sites or uh, harassing journalists directly. But in many others, it was indirect and stealthy. And in fact, some states even used the story or the, uh, used the disruption of media business by the internet as camouflage to move into the marketplace and buy opposition media uh, with, using shell companies or, or front companies. This has happened in Venezuela and Russia and elsewhere. And one need only to contrast the claims made in Egypt in 2011 during the Arab Spring, where all, we all remember um, uh, the phrase, if you want to overthrow a government, give us the internet, uh, with the vicious media repression uh, taking place there today with very little global notice, hundreds of journalists uh, in jail. 
So broadly speaking, one might conclude that the promise of open access to independent and diverse sources of information is, is a reality mostly for the minority of humanity living in mature democracies. So this is not only a challenge for journalism, it's a subject for journalism. Um, and why should we care and why is it important? Well, we can get into that during the discussion. I would just suggest two reasons. Um, uh, the first is, is that, um, especially in areas of national security, information is part of what the military likes to call the battle space. And we all see information being used as either to fuel conflicts or shape their direction. And that should be something important to all of us. But, you know, I'd also say that propaganda, censorship, the control of uh, information networks by governments um, erodes and degrades the overall environment for news and information. And I, I was thinking about this after watching uh, the, the uh, Goldsmith Awards, and many of you know, and I think there's an analogy in there, and uh, the Goldsmith Prize was given to the Associated Press for a wonderful series about uh, where your seafood comes from and the fact that your seafood is being produced by slave labor and, and others in different parts of the world. We should be, it's, it's also a public health issue and we should be equally concerned with where our information comes from. Uh, and in some cases it may be coming from sources that are as uh, sort of obscure and hidden and difficult to get at as some of those um, uh, fish purveyors. So that, that's censorship, and we can talk more about that in the discussion. You know, on polarization, and I, I know Professor Patterson is an expert in this field, so if I, if I break through the ice, I'm counting on you to throw me a line. Um, but I think there are a couple of quick points to be made. You know, so a Pew survey released uh, last month showed a very high engagement and consumption of news and information associated with the current electoral cycle. 91% of American adults reported learning about the elections in the past week. So high media <laughs> consumption. But this high level of engagement is producing, it's coinciding with the success of a candidate who requires a kind of suspension of disbelief to, um, to, uh, to support. The country's deeply divided. So more information up to this point has not been the antidote to those kinds of views. Um, there's plenty of polling that maps the rise of partisanship and the decline of trust in institutions. Government and the news media have one thing in common, which is it's, they represent two of the least trusted institutions in American life. So the news media not only reflects polarization, uh, they've had a role in deepening it. Among sources of information for the election in that uh, study I just cited, uh, the top source uh, cited by more people than any other source is cable television, which we know is a uh, you know is is the medium that maybe well, you know the internet too, but cable television is making business out of um, out of stressing uh, divisions and partisanship. Um, so the news media is part of this divide, uh, but we've done I'd, I'd say overall a very bad job of illuminating it. So I've just started working on a film uh, with Frontline. A, a series that has the working title, Divided States of America. So our job is to go out and sort of find the story that can link all of these pieces of our division uh, together. And I, I can say just from starting that, and many of you could uh, fill in your own narrative of this, um, the pieces of it in Washington are, are pretty much lying in plain sight. I mean, you can go and collect over the last eight years or 12 years the elements that have contributed to our polarization. But that story has still not been told very convincingly. 
And once you get outside the beltway into what's fueling polarization, I think in the media, um, that story just hasn't been rigorously reported. Um, in campaign coverage, uh, this cycle, as in previous ones, the, the focus is on the candidates, and in this case, in one, one candidate in particular. And yet political journalists and pundits have nearly all been wrong in predicting how resilient or successful the candidacy of Donald Trump would be. I mean, it's a, it's a major, I think, failing of the press despite this focus. So why has the press missed that story? I think there's several reasons that we could discuss. But one of them is that while there's been a high volume of reporting on the candidates, there's really been very little reporting on the voters. Uh, so Donald Trump is in, inescapable to you if you're consuming this media. Uh, but his supporters have been virtually invisible to us as the subjects of serious reporting. And the same goes, although maybe to a lesser extent, to the supporters of Bernie Sanders. I think we've missed a big part of that story. And then finally, the third category I wanted just to t touch on was um, was empathy, really. But it's more than empathy. It's, it's the relationship between the perception of humanitarian crises and the, the will to act. So the catastrophe in Syria and Iraq is probably the most documented unfolding humanitarian crisis in history. It's been documented millions of YouTube uploads, social media. And despite the mortal danger to foreign correspondents, you know, mainstream media has played a role, too, in, in, in chronicling the, those disasters. And yet that coverage has not provoked an effective policy response or really a, a, a sustained popular outcry of any kind. You can't find uh, protests on college campuses. There aren't sanctuary cities popping up around the United States to welcome refugees. And even in the case of the famous red line, even the most sort of grotesque documentation of what was going on wasn't enough to energize and motivate the policy process or the electorate to, to have a response. And, I think of this in some ways, it's almost like watching a CNN, uh, a CNN effect in reverse, right? Uh, so rather than just sort of seeing the Berlin Wall come down and saying, what's your policy, respond to it, you're seeing this myriad of images and it's being associated in some way with, um, with paralysis. Um, so, um, you know, yesterday I went to your talk, I heard Professor Ignatiev talk about, uh, you know, the collapse of the moral narrative uh, that was established after World War II uh, that had this, as you call this, sort of the fiction of progress, right? And the, and, a, and the challenge that that poses to universal values. And I think the media is, is smack dab in the center of that uh, process. So U.S. attitudes towards Syrian refugees. So this is interesting. U.S. attitudes towards Syrian refugees mirror the polarization in the country on other issues. According to Pew, in September, 70% of Democrats supported allowing refugees into the United States and 30% opposed. And among Republicans, the results were the mirror image, 70% opposed and 30% uh, were in favor. So journalism's, one of journalism's jobs is to cross that divide in some way and bring it together. And it's not just with faraway crises. I think if you look at the aftermath of Newtown, of Charleston, of other tragedies that we feel very close to home. The reporting on it has not, has not been able to, cor you can, it's hard to correlate it with uh, sustained public attitudes, changes of heart, but also movement in, in policy. So what to conclude from this? Um, you know, access to images and information and opinion is simply not, an, is simply not enough. 
Uh, and from where I come from, from journalism, it's a matter of stories. It's what kinds of stories are you generating? Uh, more authentic, deeper, better reported, more credible, and, and, uh, and to rethink the way they're being told. What this means to me is rethinking this idea of the history of now. How do you present the history of now in a way that feels as, um, as persuasive uh, as it did in earlier eras? So Robert Kappa uh, once uh, gave the famous advice to photographers that if your photograph uh, wasn't uh, uh, good, that you weren't close enough. Uh, and um, you know, we all know that journalism needs perspective and distance. It's one of the things it brings to, to uh, the world. Uh, but I think it also, it's also true that the closer that journalism gets to the lives of people, the better it becomes. And coincidentally, because we've been talking, you've been talking in this forum about the business of journalism, the further it gets from its own demise, the closer it gets to people's stories. So before I end, I wanted just to touch uh, on one aspect of journalism I've been studying over the last year that has some relevance to these questions. Um, as you know, the practice of data journalism or computational journalism is a big, important, and exciting development. Uh, for news media. It sort of puts, um, I think of, you know, data journalism is sort of are giving journalists power tools to sort of construct the view of reality. So I've been looking at something else which is uh, a complementary way of getting closer to people and issues. It's something we're all familiar with, um, the interview. So I've been studying the, the journalistic interview and the way it's, it's used in the news media. And um, in a word, you know, the journalistic interview has a fascinating history. It was basically invented in the United States by American journalists uh, in the um, 19th century and then became popularized uh, in the late 19th century with the Penny Press. One thing that's really interesting about it is that it was seen as a very disruptive activity for journalists. And if you read back through the debate of that time, it looks a little bit like Twitter, like it was, um, it was bringing personal views into the public square. It was who, were, who was speaking. And, uh, and, and it was um, also seen as sort of vulgar and an invasion of privacy and other things. Uh, but by the late 20th century, uh, the interview, to quote Michael Schutzen of Columbia, was the fundamental act of contemporary journalism. In fact, in a survey, of Washington journalists in 1980, two-thirds, or uh, Washington journalists said that two-thirds of their stories were constructed only on the basis of interviews, no documentation. So the interview was at the core of the journalistic activities. Fast forward. So our research shows the interview is changing in two fundamental ways. First, there are fewer face-to-face -face conversations involving uh, journalists involved in reporting. 24-hour news cycle, aggregation, email, uh, social platforms. People use social platforms to harvest quotations. Uh, they're all creating disincentives for in-depth uh, interviews. And there are few, technology has coughed up few tools to make that uh, activity easier. Second, the interview is in decline as an instrument of holding the powerful to account. That was one of its original purposes, to ask hard questions to powerful people. And the decline in the mediating function of news gatherers has, has contributed to a shift in the balance of power from interviewers to their subjects. And I'll give just one quick example and then wrap up. So President Obama has given fewer press conferences than any president since Ronald Reagan. Yet he has given many more interviews. How many interviews, you ask? 
Well, I happen to know. <laughs> so he's approaching his 1,000th interview in office, right? So he's given about 980 uh, interviews. And why has he done that? Well, over time, the press conference has become a sort of hostile environment for presidents, um, whereas the interview, by contrast, uh, is a much more benevolent one, where they can set the terms of the condi they can put conditions on the topics, and importantly, in the current media landscape, they can re reach niche audiences with tailored remarks. Uh, so I, I think this is a it's just an interesting part of the landscape. How does it relate to what I was speaking about earlier? Well, our research is trying to strengthen the interview as a tool of accountability, but also to give new transparency, credibility, and authority <coughs> to news reporting. We're building software, we've built an app that allows you not only to, to organize, transcribe your interviews, uh, but to publish them in a way that can be linked uh, to news stories. And eventually we're hoping to turn the fruits of interviews, transcripts, into data that data scientists can mine and look at. So I'll end on this thought. So I see an inherent good in reclaiming the human interaction that is at the core of news gathering and storytelling and one of the elements of journalism uh, that's been disrupted. And I believe that we can apply what we learn from that towards filling the gaps I've described. Thank you. No, uh, Phil, thank you so much. The, um, so you started with censorship, and uh, you've been doing some thinking and some work on that. And uh, so I mean, what you describe is a real problem, right, where governments have kind of figured out how to do some of these things. Uh, and yet it's, it's still a more open, looser system, right? Mm -hmm. So governments have always tried to control the flow of information. and. Uh, the Soviet Union was more effective at it with TASS and, and the like than uh, Putin is in today's Russia, right? And, uh, and you've got some examples like Turkey where put some of the journalists in prison, fire some other ones, uh, and when you can't do that, you have your cronies by the news organization, mm -hmm. right? So for a center like the Shorenstein Center, um, Kind of what kind of contribution in that particular area can a can a center like this make? Yeah, so I think that your 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 initial framing is absolutely right. So it's more of a cat and mouse game, right? So you've got technological advances. Uh, you know, at the early part of this, there were netizens and citizen journalists and others who were making you know uh, technological advances, and the government would catch up. So I, I think that, and I think that process is going to continue. Um, and it's not a black and white picture. So there's no completely impermeable membrane for information that no things can get through. I think that what uh, I was surprised about is that there's not more research being applied to that whole sort of landscape of of uh, control and flow of information. Now, Gary King at Harvard, for instance, has done, you know data work on social media that has tried, you know, so to try to measure the, the uh, um, efforts by the Chinese government to control flows of information. I'd, I'd love to see much more of that in, from a research standpoint, because I think in the case of, and, and again, I'm sort of skating past my, my area of expertise, but I, I, 
I'm struck by how if you look at like the narrative of Ukraine, for example, and the war for information between Russia and the West over just establishing that narrative and the facts of that narrative, that determines public opinion views of how of uh, of, uh, of of policy, but also of creating history around it. And I think so. I think that's a that's a natural place for people who are are caring about media to move into. I also see it just as a cautionary tale. I mean, I think sometimes in journalism we blow past those questions to simply consider uh, information technology as something that impacts our business model or the distribution of our own journalism. But in fact, it's it's affecting the distribution of news and information around the world, and that should be something that uh, that concerns us. I also think and that uh, you know, as an editor. Uh, you know, I think it should be a better, bigger subject of journalism. You know, I think uh, uh, we sort of yawn at it uh, in some ways. Uh, you know, freedom of the press issues are, are, are sort of, uh, you know, our special pleading in some way, uh, but they're also much more than that. If you, if you look, for instance, at just the information blackout in northern Mexico that's been sustained for years under threat of death, uh, but also you know, the Zetas are on, to, they hack into Twitter to find out who anonymous Twitter users are. They, they're, in a, they're in an active game using the technology that people are using to inform themselves to suppress that information. So I, I, I was struck when I got into this that it just seems like a, a much bigger, more robust subject than, uh, than we give it credit for. Okay. So Q&A, uh, students first. Um. My name's Emily. I'm actually a, an MP. The question I have is one of the, the comments you made at the start about the kind of proliferation of factory journalism. Um, obviously, the proliferation of the internet has encouraged lots and lots of sources to be used, some of which are more reliable than others. Um, and you can have phenomena of people getting all their news from non mainstream sources and potentially, again, factory sources. How do you think you encourage quality journalism um, on the internet using these new sources so that the kind of the facts aren't lost in the news? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, there's no answer. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it's really difficult to know. So if you're encouraging audience behavior, I mean, that's, that's obviously a very difficult thing to control. I mean, I, I, you know, my view working in a newsroom is that, well, I think in some ways, you know, good journalism drives out bad journalism if it's done, if there's enough of it and it's being done consistently enough. So you don't, you, you know, you simply pound away at the things that you need. I mean, the rise of the fact-checking movement is, a, is sort of a curious phenomenon in American journalism. This is, this, is the, this is somebody sees a business opportunity within journalism to say, we're going to have startups that are de devoted to the fact of telling facts the way they are, as if there's a business opportunity for that. And guess what? There is, right? Because people go to PolitiFact and they go to these different fact-checkers uh, to, to arbitrate differences of, of opinion. I think what, one thing that will happen over time is that the best <coughs> journalism institutions will integrate that practice into their uh, coverage. There's been a lot of talk about getting rid of, you know, he said, she said coverage. You know, he says unemployment's at 5% and she says unemployment's at 40%. You know, you decide. Uh, so, uh, so I think the fact-checking movement is having influence on that to try to say, yeah, actually, there is a right answer to that or a, a right issue. You know, there's truthiness around a, a, an answer there uh, and to, to privilege that. Um, but I also think, you know, I, I guess I'm, you know, watching, 
I, I'm always interested when my colleagues say, you know, this is the most exciting, fantastic campaign we've ever seen. I mean, for years in the news business, I just cringed during campaigns. I mean, I just, it, it's so hard to really love journalism during a big uh, campaign, uh, I think. You know, and I understand people who are really into it, uh, why they like it. Uh, but one of the reasons is because it's very difficult to hold people accountable in that process. And it's, it's also very difficult to persuade somebody with the facts. And we're seeing that, uh, you know, happening now. It's just sort of an area where not only the journalism maybe, you know, have problems with that, but the, your interaction with your audience. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I think that one of the things that, you know, journalism has done traditionally, does well, and is important to do, um, is to defy the expectations of its audience and uh, and to challenge its audience to confront things that the audience may not. This is sort of a question of, is there a difference, difference between the public interest and what the public is interested in? And I think that comes into real conflict during the campaign season when there are things that are in the public interest that may not be what the public is interested in, but news organizations should be devoted to, you know, hitting them over and over again. Joel. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm uh, Sharon Sintero here, and I'm um, Joanna Jolly, and I work for the BBC yes. in the BBC Newsroom. Uh -huh. So my question is about compassion fatigue in Syria. So I work for the BBC Newsroom, and we have a, a story about Syria every day. Mm -hmm. Usually it's one of our three headlines, and we feel very passionately, because we're a place of journalism of record, that we should put Syria up there. Mm -hmm. But we know our audience doesn't care, isn't tuning in, has tuned out mm -hmm. hugely, and we really struggle to bring the story alive. And w one thing we did recently at the BBC last week was we ran an audio diary mm. of somebody who'd smuggled mm. information out of mm. um, Raqqa, which I thought was a really good way of trying to engage people. But do you have any other suggestions? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I still think that, I think compassion fatigue is, is inexpertly measured. I mean, I think when you change, you know, you change people's views sometimes one at a time. I, I just, you know, I, I was just uh, judging a, uh, a prize that had a lot of Syria entries in it. And so you sort of get this panorama of there, there's a certain sameness to them. And I think trying to find innovative ways to tell those stories. I actually watched a front line that I had not seen that was produced after I, uh, I stopped my previous role there uh, called Escaping ISIS that just blew me away. And I defy anybody to sort of watch it and come away from it thinking, like, I'm too tired for that. You know, so I do think trying to find, and I think it comes back to human stories. I mean, the exclusion, people have not been able to exercise, use the tools that they've normally used to tell stories in that context. You mentioned yesterday, you know, Aleppo is a Sarajevo, is our Sarajevo. Well, in Sarajevo, you know, people were bringing their high-end tools of journalism, including, you know, the current, you know, uh, U.S. ambassador of the United Nations to tell that story in a, Srebrenica was told in a really powerful way when it happened. We, you know, there's just, those tools um, aren't available. And the people who are doing it, like, um, I always get this name wrong, uh, uh, Raqqa is being slaughtered silently. Is that, has anybody, anybody familiar with that site? Yeah. Okay. If you're not, you should Google it and look at it. I mean, as far as citizen journalism goes, uh, say nothing of sort of, you know, kamikaze journalism. Uh, so these are people who are reporting out of ISIS, IS controlled areas, and, and also trying to curate this vast quantity of, of, uh, of video that emerges. I do, so I do think that continuously trying to innovate in that space trying to create diaries, trying to get video diaries 
um, you know, trying to triangulate. Um, uh, I think all of those things are, are valuable. It's also true that sometimes in stories like that, I've seen, we've seen many times that there will be a fatigue for a period and then the attention will come back in some way. And to be ready when that comes back, not with just human interest stories, but with a whole array of reporting resources to bring to bear on it, I think sometimes that really can make a difference. Yeah. Arthur? Uh, Arthur Appleman, my teacher. So, Philly, thank you. I mean, you, you. You're giving us a very hopeful view of, of what the possibilities are. Uh, I'm here, putting some of the things you're saying together, I, I'm, I'm starting to see a kind of picture of how you view the, you know, the world or, or, the, or the interface between, between reporting and, and, and the world. And, and I just want to check and see if this is, this is right. So, um, let, let's start at the, at the end of you know, indifference. And if people are indifferent, it's because journalists haven't told the story in a vivid enough way, and, and so we have to keep keep trying to figure out how to tell the story. Because, and here's this kind of the assumption that that um, the descriptive truth, when told ac accurately and vividly enough, simply will make it the case that people's policy views and normative views about things will follow, right? And then, how do the journalists know what the right stories tell? Well. Okay, all this data journals, that's fine and good, but in, in t unless you do, unless you're down there telling people's stories, you don't actually know what the truth is. Um, if you don't, inter so you're interviewing of, of political figures, I completely agree with everything mm -hmm. you said about that, but I assume you meant the interv interviewing of people on the ground as, as well, and, and until you do that kind of in-depth interview, you don't actually know what the truth is. So, so if you put these two things together is, the real truth is found by boots on the ground, face-to-face, -face, ethnographic almost, um, journalism. And when that truth is told, the people will see the important, the normative importance of the story, the way the journalist sees it, and the people will change their mind. Now, told that way, you know, obviously one can question you know, each and every step. I mean, one thing is that, I mean, this of course we know, and of course you're not going to disagree with this, you can tell any story you want, mm -hmm. because you can always find the anecdote, mm -hmm. right? So unless you have something like the data journalists kind of sensibility. Um, you don't know who to, all you're doing is, is, is cherry picking anecdotes, right? So you have to have a background understanding of the broad mm -hmm. data-driven view before you can pick out your anecdotes. And then, you're, maybe you're crediting the people with too much. I mean, maybe the people see it, they understand it, they vividly uh, see the suffering, and they just don't care. Mm -hmm. and, and why should you pile that on the, the conscience of, the, of journalism for not telling their story accurately? Maybe they have. And the people just don't. There's nothing mm -hmm. to do to make. So, so at, at, at both at both ends, I'm I'm seeing um, noble heroic assumptions that you're making, and I, I just want to see what you what you think about those assumptions when, once I put them before you. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say two things just really quickly. So first of all, journalism is like the daily practice of imperfection, right? So I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's an opportunity to make mistakes every day, all the time, iteratively. So, um, you know, so I, I, I don't make any big claims on, on, on that side. And also, you know, the causality question, uh, you know, I, I've never, you know, I, I've never seen persuasive argument that like you tell a, a right story and then everybody marches behind and says, yes, now I see the, the solution. So I, I actually think that there's just an inherent value in doing that, right? And because you actually never know it's sort of like teaching right it's like do you have to teach like the 30 kids and they all gotta get the same thing or is it just one person enough right so 
I think that there are, uh, you know, there are, so I, I actually don't make the assumption that if you just tell the right story, it's going to produce these outcomes that everyone's going to feel, feel good about. <coughs> I'll I just give you one very quick example. So um, March 2003, the United States invades Iraq. We all know the story, right? And we all know that the assumptions that went into what the reception to that invasion was and what was going to happen afterwards. Well, Washington Post had a correspondent. Uh, he was ordered by his boss, me, to leave. He said no. He stayed. Uh, and he wrote, uh, you know, 47 stories in 18 days from Baghdad under siege. His name was Anthony Shadid. So he wrote a story that undermined every assumption that the United States, everything that Donald Rumsfeld was saying from the podium, he was writing a story that said, that's just not true, uh, that you're not going to be welcomed as liberators that there's a big thing happening here that you don't know anything about, which is a Sunni-Shia divide, which will come to dominate this story. Now, he was cherry-picking, right? People to talk to, go out to see things, but he was also coming at it. That's sort of the difference between good journalists and bad journalists, right? And okay. so a good journalist who's steeped in the thing, you get it, right? So, and I know you agree. that. that, that so they, they will tell a story that ultimately will hold up over time. Now, did... They stopped the invasion in its tracks once they read those stories on the front page of the Washington Post. They did not, you know? And so, uh, you know, we were in business for a long time covering that. But I do think that that, you know, I, there was not only an, in, an inherent intrinsic good in doing that, but you were actually informing people in the democracy that there was, if not, you know, this view's wrong, this view's right, but there are different views. There's dissenting views. There's another narrative thing. I, I assume that if the moral narrative of the post-war period collapses, it won't be replaced by no narrative, right? There'll be another narrative. And who's going to write that one and how is that going to be constructed? So that, that's sort of the way I would, I would think about it. But thank you. Phil, before we go to the next question, uh, could you do the front end of the post and, and Iraq? Because they did a lot of cheerleading uh, in the early going, that in the march to war. They were, they were a big voice in that part yeah. of it. So yeah. Where, where did that misreading come from? I mean, I'm trying to get it to work off of our, where did yeah. those anecdotes come from? What, what was the cherry picking that was going on that the Post yeah. so missed? Yeah, when it, yeah. When it count, and to some degree, when it counted most, right? Yeah. Well, first, let me say it wasn't my fault. So no, 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 you know, he would burn off with like the wicked witch of the West or something, and and you know, and they got it so wrong. I, I haven't I haven't seen conventional wisdom so dominate a series of of reporting that you know in a long time. So I think it's a it remains a very relevant uh, question. So. You know, I mean, I think in the run-up, and you all know the story, at least in its broad outlines, which is the uh, government made a case uh, that Iraq uh, had weapons of mass destruction. And for the first, you know, part of the war, that really was the sole reason or the certainly the predominant reason justifying the invasion of Iraq. Um, and, uh, and that turned out to be false, that Iraq did not have those uh, weapons. And uh, the news media almost had the same kind of unanimity where, you know, even someone as, as uh, you know, reliable as Bob Woodward goes on television and says he's 100 percent sure that uh, Saddam Hussein has those weapons. So, so um, yeah, I mean, I think that that ought to be, you know, if we all got sort of, you know, uh, um, 
you know, uh, uh, mental tattoos, uh, that moment should have been tattooed onto our minds that um, if, you, if you can't find a, a descent channel somewhere to a conventional wisdom, you're just not looking hard enough. And I think that as I look back on that period, there was no way because at the Washington Post and the New York Times, we actually didn't have our own intelligence agency. We couldn't like go, and we had people in Iraq. Saddam Hussein was the president. You know, you couldn't just go around and do your own intelligence of any real kind. You were also proving a negative, so you know, it had that complication. But the one thing that the press coulda, shoulda done uh, was, and something that everyone who lived through that period should have applied over and over again, is to find the dissent within the bureaucracy that can try to illuminate. Thing. I mean, this is sort of a press indexing question, too, which is uh, when there's no dissent, uh, there's nobody in Congress yelling, there's nobody, you can't, you know, bring it up, uh, then the press is very, a very poor institution at uh, differentiating among uh, claims. So I, I think that uh, when I look back on that period, I, I just think, boy, if you, if you encounter an analogous situation, uh, you need to go in and send all of your resources against what is the to report against the story. You know, lesson number two of all journalists, right? If you think you know what the story is, go out and report against it. And 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 we we just didn't do that. Michael, yeah. um, Philip, you thanks for your shout out to my talk. That is above and beyond the call of duty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm astonished. Anyway. Um, There's a good crowd. <laughs> well, the, the question about compassion fatigue, uh, I, I just wonder whether that's a usable or useful way to think about what the problem is. I just, I'm trying to get at the relationship between the press and horrible news overseas and how it does or doesn't generate um, rhetorics of engagement. Um, and I... I would have I, just asking you to talk about what's the missing piece here between the press and 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 the compassion of citizens. Uh, my suggestion would be that the the thing that you have to that has to happen is not just the story, but a political narrative of what we do, um, and and acceding to the political narrative of what we should do is a narrative about forgive the radical oversimplification, forgive the gender-specific pronouns, but good guys, bad guys. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of, the, one of the, the things that mobilized action in Bosnia was a sense that there were some good guys having the life, living daylights pounded out of them in Sarajevo, and uh, in a world of moral grays, uh, it was clear that there were some darker shades mm. of obloquy and thing than others, right? And, it, and in Syria, it's become m much more difficult to generate a narrative of action, and it's also become a very difficult to generate a narrative of responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and those may be, I'm, I'm asking you to reflect on that because that may be the missing piece. I mean, you can put out, because it, it, you, you observe the paradox that there has been more social media coverage and more footage out of that horror in Syria than, than anything in the history of humankind. Mm. There's no shortage of our capacity to see how awful it is. What's missing is a political narrative 
and an attribution of responsibility that is clear. And absent that, then just there's nowhere for compassion to go. Is what mm -hmm. I guess I'm saying. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. It's, that you know that's so well. I mean, it's such a hard. Uh, problem, and I, I think that there is a place appropriately where journalists step back from that problem, and say, and, and partially for good reasons, because there's a long history of journalism provoking compassion to lead to bad policy outcomes. I mean, one of those famous pieces of American journalism, you know, the death of Rodriguez, you know, uh, Cu you know, uh, Spanish-controlled Cuba, turn of the century, William Randolph Hearst, you know, you send me the pictures, I'll send you the war. You know, his guy says, here's one Cuban lad about to be executed by the vile Spaniards, you know, let's invade. So, you know, I think, you know, and I, I so I don't think the call is to say, gosh, if there were only more, you know, um, you know, horrifying pictures of, of dead children washed up on beaches, you know, we'd be, we'd be getting somewhere. You know, I, so I don't think that's the response simply to, so I think it, it goes to your larger point, which is, to be compassionate or, or, to, or to tell stories that bring you into the human experience as it's being lived, not just through, through suffering, but through a much larger experience of, what it, of what's going on there. That's the complexity of the situation. I mean, are we seeing this, this whole part of the world disintegrate? Um, it's history disintegrate. It's, um, it's collective identity disintegrate. And can you tell that story through individual people? I mean, I was even thinking, I mean, I was thinking about Aleppo because, uh, you know, could you marshal some sort of journalistic resource or resources to actually do a prolonged kind of study of what's happened in Aleppo as a place and map that out? And would that tell you something more fundamental about what that experience is? It may not say to, you know, the National Security Council, you know, here's your answer, go do this, uh, but it would help us, us. Uh, know and feel and decide sort of what the situation really is because I think that's that's our role is to say if you you have this menu of options that's up to you to decide and up for people to provide their consent for you to decide our job is to give you as accurate a picture of reality as we can and if that part of the maps just blank to us then then we've we failed in some way so I, I guess that's how I'd answer that. Well, thank you so much um, for this today. I, I wanted to, um, at the intersection of two of the things that you've talked about, ask a question. So this, this sort of decline of the interview and um, this uh, very strange um, uh, shadow cast over the Trump coverage, which I've been reading retrospectively um, recently, that absolutely demonstrates what you've described as sort of the absence of voters in the conversation until very recently. The last couple of weeks, there's been an explosion mm -hmm. of stories about who are these people, kind of who are these people who've disproven <laughs> the <laughs> theories <laughs> Damn them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm um, why do you think that was, though? It seems like the arc of this campaign, in terms of coverage, you know, and this is grossly overstated, but you know, we went from Huffington Post announcement that we were going to cover this as entertainment to really kind of a quick leap now to um, absent the interviews to well, now we should be calling him out for what he is with this big missing piece of who are these Americans 
who may or may not be a majority, we don't know that yet, but there are a lot of them. And, um, and some of them are coming from surprising places. There was a really good series mm. of anonymous mm. interviews, actually, mm. with The Guardian printed <laughs> yeah, this past yeah. week that yeah. I thought was revelatory. Yeah. And I wondered, where was that story last year? Yeah. What, what happened? I mean, because in some ways, it seems like a population that journalists would be drawn to cover, right? <laughs> and, and to kind of to try to figure out this mystery. And, um, but where, where were we? Yeah. What what explains it to you? Is it, you know, is it the old? Because that used to be a convention mm, of right. political or campaign coverage. Right. You right. know, the box pop or the boy. Every newsroom had a, had a word for that story. Yeah. What what's happened? Well, you you and I judge a lot of uh, prizes, and you know, I think I, I sort of live in fear in a forum like this. that someone is going to tell me, tell me your top three pieces about income inequality in the United States. That's what I say. I mean, journalism pieces? Because it just hasn't been, you know, people haven't found a way to engage with that, uh, with that um, subject in a really meaningful way. Now, there are examples, I don't want to, you know, insult anybody who's done great work on that, but I think that coming to mind, if we all think in our own minds, like sort of who's been in, so I think there are a couple of, of, of uh, explanations that just strike me, and I don't know how, how accurate they are, but maybe they'll, they'll coincide with some of your impressions. You know, uh, one is, you know, this is sort of a pendulum on data journalism, you know, so we really came out of the last two cycles saying, hey, there's this group of young journalists, and man, they can tell you within like .000%, like who's going to win Iowa in this precinct and this kind of thing, and here's the magic board, and we can go like that, and it's all going to, and it's really going to meet our <coughs> expectations because we've sort of cracked the code on people's behavior, and we can show you in numbers how it's going to be. Well you know, okay. So now it looks more like, you know, an NCAA bracket, right? Which is like, I got probabilities, but I don't, I don't really know who's going to win in the end. So I think that there was, a, there was a movement towards, you know, those that become the precinct of people who are saying, I know, and here's how I know. And I'm going to, and so there are a lot of, and that's where a lot of the sort of, you know, we've looked at the numbers and it's impossible for the guy to make it. That, I think some of it came from that. I also take very seriously, and this is maybe not very satisfying as an answer, but I've always taken seriously when people are, are understood or, or we understand them as being people who aren't being heard, that many times they're actually not being heard. <laughs> and in this case, these people are not being heard. That's why we haven't heard them. So, uh, uh, I, I think, you know, and you and I have been in this situation many times, is that when you have a newsroom, you say, go out and listen to those people who aren't being heard, who are either, you know, in many social movements around the country, you know, Black Lives Matter, or does that, there are a lot of people who, who sort of, you know, one of their principal grievances is like, no one's listening to us. And if our business is to listen, <laughs> you know, then we're, we, we've somehow lost the connection to that thing. And I think that that's, that, I think, some of it's as simple as that, which is people who control reporters or reporters who are able to fund themselves didn't go out and do enough listening to people. I mean, just think about the cartoon characters that emerge from, like, interviewing people at Trump rallies. I mean, it's just not serious. And, uh, and I think that if, if you are serious, if you would be serious, you would find as The Guardian and others are finding that this is real, you know, the, the degree of separation between a Trump voter and a Sanders voter may be like this. Right? What does that say? What, what's, you know, and if you're trying to say, what's the Republican Party of the United States going to look like in six months or a year from now, 
those people hold part of the key to that. You know, they they were Democrats. Ronald Reagan came. They became Republicans. Now they're becoming something else. Like, what are they becoming? So I, I think that it's a, a wonderful uh, subject for journalism. I, I you know, I, I, I've had... I was talking to colleagues in Washington last week about you know, if you could find the precinct uh, or the congressional district that Barack Obama won uh, decisively or, or notably in 2008 that has now, is now producing a lot of votes for Trump, send a reporter to that district and talk to those – and sink into that place for a week and you're going to discover amazing things about what it's like to be a voter in America. And I think that's uh, – you know, that's just something that for the last six months or, or even longer, people just didn't make that assignment. So let, let me I'll just add that yeah. it, it, I think it goes beyond the not being, so we're not, we're not listening, but we went really quickly to yelling at you mm. because it, the absence of that journalism and the absence of that was a lot of um, opining and screaming at. Mm. And calling you name, calling you the voter names, right? Um, which is, which I think it's been something I don't remember seeing. I don't like to think that part of it is that reporters go to Donald Trump events and they get screamed at, mm -hmm. so that they're just sort of like you know everybody's sort of in the defensive crowds. They're sort of you know, hi, um, can I talk to you for a minute? You know, I uh, <laughs> and uh, and they're not really they're, they're sort of. I mean, I don't – actually, I don't think that's a big factor because reporters get screamed at all the time. And that's not where you would do that story. It's not where you do that story. But whether or not there's just sort of a, like, they're not like us kind of thing, I don't know where that f might fit in. So can I do a little postscript to this? So um, to some degree, I think that the data has been right in front of their face for a long time, mm -hmm. right? So uh, we've had some pollsters in, like Peter Hart, mm -hmm. in the last mm -hmm. six months. Uh, they, in fact, were telling this story. Um, and uh, and obviously the journalists were looking at those polls, but somehow couldn't take their eyes off the trial heat question and never went below basically the trial heat question in the mm -hmm. polls. So how do you how do you get them to kind of look a little more broadly, even at the data that someone's handing to them and, and being prepared for them? Yeah, well, that's a lot, a lot of what you're doing. I mean, you know, I think this is something we that that it's it's good for journalism and it's going to be good for the larger audience to really unpack this in a major way and try to understand what the different drivers of this were, and also to just do a little sort of fact checking on uh, is our is our assumption about what's just happened really true? And yeah. and part of the Peter Hart thing is that, which is you know, like who missed it, how they miss it, and can we really try to try to boil that down, but it's, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's a really potent idea, and um, I think that if it turns out that uh, there's a, you know, there are major social movements occurring in the United States of different kinds that are not being readily identified by the news media and gone out and written about, and it's some sort of, like, it's some sort of counterculture that people aren't, you know, it's like reporters in the late 60s who You'd grown up and all of a sudden there were all these kids and they didn't know really how to talk to them and, you know, what was that all about? So if it's something that that stark, uh, then, uh, you know, it's going to be a really interesting subject here. Right here. Sure. Thanks for looking behind you. Um, thinking of specifics of how to get, uh, how, to, how to cover the people who are showing up at Trump rallies or people who aren't interested in Syria, it, you need a hook. And there's a beautiful hook for Aleppo that the BBC could use if you want. 
There's an Aleppo shrine. It's a shrine of the Shriners organization, Division of the Masons, in Wilmington. And uh, they host, they have an auditorium that hosts a lot of events. I, I go there to antique shows. And I talked to quite a few people wearing these Turkish-type hats and costumes. Uh, well, do you have any interest in Aleppo? I didn't find anyone who knew what it was, no, let alone express any interest. Now that's a story. You could do scenes of Aleppo and then talk to these people and, and point out they're good people. The Shriners provide free hospitals for people who suffer burns. You know, in a certain area, they're very focused, but we miss it out. And then there needs to be a story on destructive and constructive uses of anger, which you could talk with psychologists about. I knew someone who knew, who knew Mother Teresa well, mm -hmm. and his description of her was, she's the angriest person I've ever known, mm -hmm. but she channels it. So you could be do a story on people marching against immigration, and then somebody who's found a way to make money out of helping immigrants. Mm -hmm. So we're getting tight on time, so yeah, just following up on that, maybe maybe Donald Trump isn't really angry. Maybe he's the Mother Teresa sort of in, in reverse. But uh, Marilyn, we have time for one more question. Uh, sure. And this is a quick one. Um, uh, yeah. Phil on Marilyn Thompson. <laughs> yeah. I think you know that. Yes. But. Um, the election's not over yet. What is the role of the media moving forward <coughs> if we go into a um, Trump-Clinton competition? Um, so I think that that brings back, she's uh, not here any longer, but I mean, I, I do think there's a refereeing, you know, job of, of, of you know, truth-telling that, you know, was, will be important in that, that kind of fight. I, you know, I, I, I balk at this because I think campaigns are so difficult to cover <laughs> effectively, you know. Um, uh, there will be a role for looking at money, which we not really, you know, money's playing a sort of idiosyncratic role in this cycle, so, uh, but it's going to be important at the end. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess because everything seems um, predictive, I still like to go back to the voters, and I still like to figure out, you know, there there is, you know, something really important has happened that we've seen represented in statistics with declining middle, real incomes from middle-class families. Well, I think it's become part of the narrative of, bo of both parties, um, and yet uh, we don't have um, fixed in our minds as well as we should what that reality really is and what the solutions for it look like. I mean, if we're actually, we all sort of suspect that none of the policy proposals being put forward by either party is going to change that calculus at all because it's a product of globalization and technology and all sorts of other things, that ought to be a subject for journalism to get, to get into. And um, so that's, that's a sort of wonky answer to something that's going to look like a rodeo. Um, so uh, I, I don't know how much it will square up with the actual drama of that uh, confrontation. But I also think... You know, how are you going to – I mean, I remember going to conventions as an editor at the Washington Post and just thinking conventions were like, you know – I'm sorry. It was like, you know, when is this over, please? <laughs> because they were – you know, it was just like the longest sort of reality show that, you know – and for my kind of reporting, it really didn't, you know uh, – but 
that may not be the case this summer. <laughs> it may be a very good story and a great story, and I think people ought to be preparing for that, too. Phil Bennett, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.